Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo, everybody. This podcast celebrates the sixth anniversary of our podcast series. We love doing the podcast series, but we couldn't without the generosity of our guests, our interviewers, and most of all, our listeners. So thanks. To celebrate, we asked our old friend Larry Schulman to talk with us about the integration of science and art in evidence-based practice. Dr. Schulman begins with a brief overview of what constitutes an evidence-based practice. He discusses how to integrate evidence-based practice concepts and interventions while maintaining social work's unique role and the worker's personal artistry, and provides numerous examples about how to apply these ideas and recommendations. Dr. Lawrence Schulman is a semi-retired professor and former dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. He is the author of many books and numerous articles, and he has done extensive research on the core helping skills in social work practice, supervision, and group work. His status as a long-term contributor to the practice of social work is well established. I interviewed Larry Schulman by telephone in July of 2014. Hi, everyone. Our guest is a friend of the show and a longtime friend to many of us here at the UB School of Social Work, Larry Schulman. Hi, Larry. Hi, Pete. <laughs> All right. So today we had planned to talk about your thoughts on social work practice and the impact of the pretty widespread adoption of evidence-based practice. I know that you believe that evidence-based practice is kind of misunderstood and misused, and that that fosters a kind of false dichotomy of science and art. So I guess I'd like you to just kind of take off and right from there. Sure. Well, you know, just basically, just so we're all on the same page, these are a number of uh, models that have been federally funded over the years, NIH, National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIAAA, et cetera. And they don't call it an evidence-based practice or EBP unless it has some rigorous testing. Some of the requirements are you have to see that the best scientific knowledge is included. You have to have a meta-analysis of existing outcome studies so that you see a number of studies. And you have to combine with professional ethical standards, et cetera, and randomized controlled outcome studies. I'm just being brief on this, but I did want to summarize that. And the, the three big ones, I think, that people often talk about that started early and are widespread would include solution-focused practice, motivational interviewing, and cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, I do want to be clear. I think there are some wonderful ideas that emerge from many of these new models, including the three I just mentioned. And I'll give some examples as we go through the conversation. But my objection, my concern, is with some rigid protocols where people feel they have to practice in a very specific way 
and almost a time-organized practice, which I don't think really takes into account what's going on with the client at the moment, but also starts to strip away the artistry that I think uh, most practitioners bring to their work. So my whole goal is not to abandon evidence-based practice, but to take the best parts of it and integrate them into something that I think a professional can feel comfortable with and find a way for them to use the science to enhance their art rather than restrict their artistry. So I think that's a major issue. So since our last podcast, Larry, that you and I did together, I've changed my interviewing style. I'm now modeling it more after Stephen Colbert of the Colbert Report. So here is when we're talking about evidence-based practice and also the art of practice, here is the challenge. So Larry, what's the problem with a practice approach that tells us what works and what to do with our clients? It's perfect. What's the problem with that? That's not the problem, really. When you look at what's going on right now, for example, and you read the literature that comes out of the NIH agencies, and I'm summarizing this, what they say is consistently that they spend billions, not millions, billions of dollars supporting the research, but they find there's a huge problem in sustainability. So they come out with evidence-based practice models. They have training sessions. People set up private consulting groups. They train supervisors and agencies to try to implement these practices. And over a period of time, the practitioners go back to the way they used to work. So that's an anomaly. And what is the source of the anomaly? My own view is the source of the anomaly is this rigid protocol idea. I'll give you some examples that may help in solution focus, which I like very much, by the way, and I'll give some examples of how I have supervised or trained people or used some of those ideas myself. But there is some issue around reflection. And in one article, one of the people writing about this lack of sustainability, she says, well, maybe the problem is when you have to do three straight I hear you sayings and then pause and then three more I hear you sayings some people might consider that to be mechanical. Well, it is mechanical because you're busy counting your I hear you saying or your reflections and you can't possibly be listening or feeling with the client you're talking to. That's just one example. I think there are a whole lot of others. On the other hand, let me just stay with solution focus so people don't think I'm a critic that has no appreciation for some of the strengths. We work in Buffalo. We still are, by the way, with a project for kids in one of the schools, an inner city school, a school violence prevention program funded by New York State. And so our social work students from UB who are placed there and the professionals, they will sit with these kids who are suspended. And one of the questions they'll ask them, they'll say things like, you know, last year you got through almost the full year without being suspended. What was going on in your life that helped you get through the whole year without being suspended? That's a solution-focused technique. I think it's terrific because it focuses the kids not on what got them into trouble, but what were the sources of strength and help that kept them out of trouble. I like some of these ideas. Every one of the models I mentioned, I like in some ways. It's rigidity that gets me troubled. We had a good example. I'll give you one more, and I'll get into this later with some other illustrations. 
But we had a project at our own school, at the School of Social Work, that was part of a 16-site funded program for parents and kids on a parent effectiveness program. It was funded by NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse. And I wasn't part of the project, but we had a senior faculty member of ours who was leading the project at our school. And they would bring in parents and they'd bring in kids and they'd have dinner together. The parents would meet separately. The kids would meet separately. They'd bring them together. It sounded like an interesting idea. Our group of participants in the study included about half of them who were referred, excuse me, by the child welfare system. And they were told, in effect, that they needed some help on parenting skills. And, of course, they could have refused to come, but also have their kids removed. Now, there's a room, and I've seen this. It was right in our own school. And they're having this meeting, and there's one camera. And the camera, the video camera, is taping focused on the presenters. And the presenters are presenting content to the parents. Now, half of that group has their arm folded. You can just imagine what this resistant, uh, mandated group of parents is thinking and feeling. As if they're hearing a word that's being said, they're not because of their feeling of resistance of being brought there. Now, at the end of the session, I spoke to the leaders who were good group leaders. And I said, didn't you notice right from the beginning you were getting a lot of resistance? My guess is you would normally have explored the resistance. You would have said something about it and opened it up for discussion. And they said, yes, we would have, but it's not in the protocol. And we had 10 minutes to deliver this, 15 minutes to deliver this. Why? Well, there are 16 sites. We have to have, I'm quoting, dosage integrity right across the sites. Now, that to me is a good example. I mean, the program sounded great. But that's a good example of how people are restricted in their work. And I know these group leaders. I've seen other groups that they've led. They are wonderfully artistic group leaders. They would have known how to explore that resistance. The protocol stopped them. So the cookbook or the recipe approach, you know, no matter what's going on, has obvious caveats for I know the type of practice that you've espoused for a long time. Could I ask you this, Larry? Why do you think that the the whole kind of movement more and more toward evidence-based practice and even the way it's been interpreted, which I don't think has always been true to the approach itself, why do you think it's grown, gathered so much traction? What's the appeal for people in your opinion? Well, you know, as I go around, agencies are under a lot of pressure for starters. State agencies that uh, run them or fund them, private boards, etc., they want to be able to say they are effective and they're providing a good service. I have an agency that I had contact with in Ontario, and as part of the agency, they had a program for parents and kids who had ADHD. And they were advertising this provincially wide and getting funded as an evidence based practice. This was at exactly the same time when the association that represented parents and kids with these problems on their webpage was saying there is no evidence-based practice yet. There's a lot of research going on. And I have another, I just read something in another online thing where an agency, a child welfare agency, was congratulating itself because the state had decided that they had an evidence-based practice. What was the evidence? Well, they did a survey of their clients, and their clients liked the work, and they thought there was good contact. So now they're advertising themselves as evidence-based practice. See what I'm saying? I think there's a lot of that. And I also think 
this will get me in trouble, but I think there are a lot of academics who teach these things who don't practice themselves and maybe haven't seen a client for a long time. Let me give you one example. I saw this one, motivational interviewing. Once again, I really like motivational interviewing in terms of the phases of change, stages of change. Prochaski and DiClemente, I think they're right on target. It was very useful. And I'm watching this guy working with substance abuse counselors in an agency, and he's presenting motivational interviewing and Prochaski and DiClemente. And he's got a room where all of them have their arms folded. Half of them have walked the walk and talked the talk, but don't have degrees. The other half have degrees, but have not walked the walk and talked the talk. If you've ever been in a substance abuse treatment agency, that is very common. So as he's presenting, he runs into a wall of resistance from these guys. And he battles ahead. It's a battle of wills. Him trying to push this, them resisting, you name it, they get nowhere. He walks out of the room, and I saw him, and he says, I think these guys are just unmotivated. And I said, was it possible you were dealing with a group, a group of professionals who were in the pre-contemplation stage? And he didn't really understand what I was saying. So instead of starting with them and saying to them, I'm going to present some ideas that may be useful, may be helpful, but before I do, can you tell me some of the things you run into when you try to treat people who are in recovery or should be in recovery and are not? Do you understand what I'm saying? You know my work. Listen first, talk later. And he would have gotten all of the issues that they experienced. In fact, I think he actually got them because I think the people in his training group were acting out the problems, that, not knowledgeably, they weren't conscious. They were acting out the very problems they experienced when they worked with clients. And he wasn't skillful enough to notice it. So he was in the action stage, working with a group in the pre-contemplation stage, and he was modeling the opposite of what he was supposedly teaching. Am I making some sense on this, Peter? Yeah. Do you think this fellow believed that he was actually implementing an evidence-based practice? I don't think he realized that when you teach an evidence-based practice or you supervise it, you have to model it. The expression I use is more is caught than taught. So you can't, for example, in a strengths perspective, and I think Solution Focus, by the way, has a strengths perspective, which I really like. You can't sit down with your worker as a supervisor and go over an interview where they didn't get anywhere and say to that worker, well, you know, I don't think you were really listening or hearing what this client was saying. You were treating them as if it was pathological. You weren't treating them as if they had strength. You say that, and you're now in a battle with the worker. The solution-focused approach, if you want to use it as a supervisor, would be to say to that same worker as a supervisor, you know, over this past year, I've noticed you've been successful with some of your clients and ran into roadblocks like this one with others. What was going on or what was helpful to you with those clients that you were successful? Do you understand what I just did? I modeled. You've modeled and you've kind of shown the way collaboratively which I think you've referred to many times as kind of a parallel process. That's exactly right. Our last one on supervision that we did, I got a lot of feedback from people who really appreciate the idea of the parallel process. When I lead a workshop, I try to model in the workshop what I believe. You know, and a mutual aid, for example, getting workers to help each other or supervisors. I just came from a conference 
the International Interdisciplinary Clinical Supervision Conference. So what are the workers? So when I begin, I'm doing a presentation, and part of it is the parallel process and how do you integrate uh, science and art. And part of the problem is they're starting to talk about being overwhelmed in their agencies. Their agencies are telling them they have to use these protocols because they're getting funded based on it. Meanwhile, they're seeing too many clients. They're not getting support. So they're supposed to use these protocols and at the same time keep their billable hours up and raise their billable hours. So I have to work with them, the supervisors. This was a supervision conference on how they could work with their workers to help them sort out what parts of these practices they can use and how do they start to make a case to their administration that they'll be more effective in the long term, uh, the real effectiveness with clients, if they don't get locked into a stepwise protocol. And that was part of the workshop that I had to do, that I just did last week. So I'm listening to you talk, and let me just see if I can say it in a slightly different way and tell me if I'm on the mark. To circle back to evidence-based practice, and it sounds like when it comes to implementation of evidence-based practice, the problem is one of extremes. There are people who are going to hold on to the science, and they're going to cling to the research, and that's it they're going to hold on to it very tightly. And I think it's fair to say there are a lot of practitioners, at least I hear this in conversations, who just think, you know, evidence-based practice is destroying the art of social work practice and the therapy practice. So they'll dismiss the evidence completely because they know what works. And human beings are complex, and you have to have many, many tools, and in many ways you have to work by the seat of your pants. And so people don't bring them together, is the argument that you're making. Well, there's a polarization in what you just said. I think you're absolutely accurate. And uh, and it would be interesting to think about it. Like, why would people adopt things rigidly? I've seen students who graduate in their first day as an MSW, for example, they'll say, I'm a solution-focused practitioner. Or what do you do? Oh, I do cognitive behavioral therapy. And there's a certainty about that that makes them feel good. Dewey had an expression on it, quest for certainty, and one of the things he wrote, that we like to be certain. And of course, that closes them off from seeing how the models really work and making adaptations. I do think that if you want to be looking at evidence-based practice, if you want to look at one, you ought to learn the model. You ought to learn how it works, how it gets implemented. You ought to be open-minded about it. And then when you have a good grasp of it, you can now start doing variations on the theme. So I'm not objecting to people taking a whole course on cognitive behavioral therapy. What I'm objecting to is feeling that they, they feel that at the end of the course, they're now a cognitive behavioral therapist. And they're not. You know? And even the research, even the research isn't that clear in terms of long-term impact. A lot of the research is short-term research. Do people finish their treatment? Do they stay, you know, depending on which area we're talking about. So it's even the research on it is not as significant or long-term as some people would like us to believe. So the quest for certainty, I think, is part of it. I think that it would be very helpful if us educators were able to help our students avoid coming to premature closure. I mean, one of the expressions I have is so many models and so little time. And so we try to teach at least one or more. So what I have done for my own practice, my own teaching, my own research, and my own writing, 
is I built on the Bill Schwartz framework, as you know, and developed what I call the interactional model of practice, which I think has any of the core dynamics and skills that cut across all settings, supervision, practice, different populations, and then using that as a framework, such as time, for example, the preliminary or preparatory phrase, uh, frame, tuning into the client, the beginning or contracting work, the middle or the work phase where we avoid the illusion of work, the ending and transition phase. So I have that as a framework. Now, in that framework, I can integrate all kinds of ideas. Motivational interviewing is really great. I have an example. I don't know if it was in the paper I sent you in advance of uh, somebody beginning with a group of uh, people mandated to come to a group because they had driving while intoxicated, DWIs. Judge said, you go, you go to prison. First session, she's sitting there. It's a young woman uh, leading the group. They all have their arms folded. She hands out a sheet. One of them takes the sheet, which has the agenda for the day and for the whole series, crumples it up and tosses it into a waste paper basket. And remember, this is a young woman leading a group with you know, maybe 20 men, and they're all waiting to see what she's going to do. Well, she doesn't get into a battle of wills, which I think many people would in this area. You know, well, if you don't want to be here, why don't you leave? I'll just send a note to the judge and let him know, et cetera, et cetera. She says, skillfully, it looks like you really don't want to be here. I'll bet you're not alone. I'll bet most of you in this group are wondering why you're here. And that opens up a discussion. Yeah, so I got picked up on a weekend. I wasn't lucky, that's all. Everybody drinks a little on the weekend. You have a drink and all of a sudden they call you an alcoholic. I don't want to be made to feel guilty. So what's the art? This is motivational interviewing. We're at the pre-contemplation stage. She jumps up to a whiteboard and she writes, don't want. Okay, you don't want to be called an alcoholic. What else don't you want? I don't want to be made to feel guilty, and on and on. She's making a list of what they don't want, and guess what that list is? The agenda that he crumpled up and threw it away. Now, to me, that's motivational interviewing, but it's also artistry, the way she did it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm listening while you're talking, and, you know, I actually try to teach this stuff myself. So when we have, especially in the MSW program, when I have conversations with foundation year students and they're learning about evidence-based practice, it seems that the way they put that together is, okay, there are schemes, if you will, that if I just identify the problem through an assessment, Evidence-based practice will tell me which model will work for this problem and pretty much what I should do. And then, you know, well, I'll say, is there more? Tell me what else you read or, you know, I haven't done a complete lecture yet. And it's interesting because that's often where they stop. That's their interpretation of the approach. But what you're saying is, in addition to that, there's a huge role for clinical judgment. That's the art part, where the clinician is not rigidly following a script. They are wondering, hey, okay, as I talk more with this particular client, does the evidence-based practice for this type of problem work for this particular client? That would be the clinician's role. 
Yeah, you raising me uh, would be right now a much larger issue that goes past evidence-based practice, but is very, very directly related to it. And it has to do with what I've called about the paradigm shift. I'm not going into details about a paradigm shift, but you remember if you went back to your astronomy, the Earth was the center of the universe and everything rotated around us. And whoops, hey, Copernicus, Galileo, maybe the sun is the center of the universe. That was a paradigm shift major difference in thinking. Of course, there are a lot of people who are astronomers who still saw the Earth as the center of the universe. So in my view, the paradigm shift for the profession is letting go of the model that we borrowed from medicine. And that model we borrowed from medicine was three stages. You just described it. We do a study, we make a diagnosis or assessment, and we develop a treatment plan. I have no problem with studies. I think assessments can be very helpful. We have to make them all the time. And a general strategy of work or treatment is fine, but I don't think practice works that way. That's why I call it interactional in nature. I think as you're sitting with the client, no matter what you said with your supervisor and what treatment plan or model you develop, you are being influenced moment by moment by that client. And that rather than being, rather than thinking, am I using the right approach with this client, you ought to be feeling what that client is generating inside of you and how that is affecting you and how you in turn are affecting the client. That's a different paradigm. It doesn't let go of the other ideas. I'm not negating any of that, but it says that's not what practice actually looks like. So if you go in with what you have determined for that particular client is the appropriate evidence-based practice, you're busy implementing a practice, and you're not hearing the client. I can give you example after example where that happens. And my research years ago when I videotaped 120 hours of social work practice, and we analyzed it using a system that I developed, category observation system where you put a number down to categorize the behavior. This was a long time ago. This is when you had punch cards, remember? And you brought them to the computer center and you handed, that tells you how long ago this study was. But we were able to, my research assistants were able to code whether we thought the social worker individually and in group was responding to what the client was producing. And, and for the first thirds of the session, we found that 60% of the time, the worker was working on one set of ideas and the client was producing a whole different set of problems. They missed each other like chips in the night. That is not an interactional model. That's a model where you've decided where the interview is supposed to go. And you literally don't hear what the client is saying. So you touched on, I think, a larger issue, Peter, which is really the paradigm shift that I think is taking place. And so well, I'm just saying that within a framework, and I don't care if it's the interactional model or you come up with another one. I mean, I'm very close to psychoanalytic theory. I like Karkoff. I like Truax. You know, they all, Rogers was wonderful, except he left the workers' feelings out, the psychiatrist's feelings, as if we didn't really have them. But otherwise, these are wonderful ideas. So I could take any of these models that are at least paying attention to what's going on between you and the client at the moment and integrate into them some form of evidence-based practice. This comes from a guy named Jeff Albert, who was one of my students in Boston, and uh, wrote a nice article on work with psychiatric patients, but he integrated into a mutual aid model, cognitive behavioral therapy. And so just this brief excerpt from one of his sessions, the patients are dealing with, this is his writing, patients are dealing with the idea of permanent thinking, that when they are depressed, for example, 
treatment can seem interminable and futile. This sense of failure and permanency in turn affects their ability to continue to cope. So this guy is now leading a mutual aid support group based on the interactional model, but he's going to introduce cognitive behavioral therapy ideas. Sharon said, I had the leaves raked into piles. Then the wind blew them all around the yard again. I thought, what's the use? They'll never get done. There will always be leaves. Then I went back to bed. My body started feeling heavy. I couldn't get out of bed. The group leader points out that Sharon had used the word always when speaking about her hospitalization. She had said, I'll always go back to the hospital. The leader asked, is it true there will always be leaves? Is the job never done? Sharon said, that's one way of looking at it. I asked the group for other ways. Members suggested that Sharon think about other tasks she has completed. This would be considered disputation in a cognitive behavioral model. Nick said, maybe you would have to redo the raking once or twice, maybe even three times, but not forever. Again, disputation. Another one said, I mean, you do what you can. Then it snows and you're done. They all laugh. I said, the leader, you do what you can. That's straight out of cognitive behavioral therapy, reframing, disputing, helping people start to change their mind. And yet it's integrated into a mutual aid support group where the help is coming from other patients, not just from the worker. Am I making it clear what I mean? I mean, I'll take these ideas, but I don't want to integrate. I don't want to use them in a mechanical way. I want to use them when they fit and where they fit, and I want to use them in a model that I feel comfortable with. A huge oversimplification, but but in so many words, it's really science and art, not science or art, which is, I think, the mistake that people make. Yes, yeah. I like the idea of... uh, these notions that there are splits, dichotomies, all kinds. I mean, you know my teaching. You've been involved in workshops I've given. You've used my book. I think you used my book. You still use my book? Anyway, am I professional? Am I personal? False dichotomy. You have to use yourself in a professional way. Do I support or do I confront? False dichotomy. You have to confront, and that's one of the most supportive things you can do. There was confrontation in the excerpt I just read but it was gentle and supportive confrontation. They called it disputation. You know, do I deal with the individual or the group, a false dichotomy? Look at this example. Where, and look at the example of the driving while intoxicated. When the guy threw the thing away, instead of dealing with the individual versus the group, she was smart enough to say, I think you're not the only one who feels that way in this group. So she was dealing with both the individual and the group as the second client. It's all of these false dichotomies. Science and art, I think, has now entered that false dichotomy. So, yes, we can use a science, but we should use a science that frees our artistry, not one that takes it away. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the the ways that you have approached things, I know having been around you and even watching you work, what I've always liked about it is that, for example, you stuck with the science. Certainly science and evidence was guiding your practice. You were very willing to exercise a certain level of clinical judgment in kind of applying that with a particular client. 
And what I like, what you have always espoused is you, at the end of all that, you are very likely going to turn to that client and say, and so what do you think about all this evidence and how I see your situation? Collaboratively now, you are chiming in and we're creating together in kind of an odd way a new, unique set of evidence about what works with this particular client. Yeah. Well, what you're describing, I would shorthand call it working with the client instead of working on the client. And when implementing an evidence-based practice in a very rigid way, you know, following protocol after protocol, we're working on clients. When doing what you just described and what I like to think my practice is all about, we're working with clients. I could see someone saying to a client, you know, there's this whole thing called motivational interviewing, which is very interesting. It says that sometimes people are in a pre they don't even know they have a problem. They call it pre-contemplation. And until they move to contemplation and begin to think they have, even have a problem, there's no way they can take action to solve it. Do you think that fits anything you're going through right now? What stage do you think you're in? That'd be a very clever, I think, an artistic way of using some of the concepts of motivational interviewing, bringing the client on board. It's no secret. You don't have to take a course on it. It's a very nice idea. There are other ideas, too, you know, that I don't want to go into detail with each of those models, but I think each one of them has within them, when there's a rigid protocol, elements that I would not use. I will never in my life, I'm sorry, as much as I like solution-focused ideas, I will never ask the miracle question. Because I think it's silly. (laughs) If I was a client and you asked me the miracle question, I might answer it, but in my mind I'd be saying, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah, I think at this point, a lot of clients will, will say to you, hey, was that the miracle question? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I will say this, not necessarily with academics and researchers, but when I work with supervisors, managers, or practitioners, there's a very responsive note when they hear me talking about this. It's touching on something. It's letting them say, I can use science and not polarize, like the group you mentioned before, which is none of this research counts, but I can use myself with the science. I don't have to lose myself. That's a very profound, I think, understanding. And, you know, we have other models, too. We're talking about what's called evidence-based practice, but what about emerging models, spirituality? That's a very interesting idea. Well, there's no evidence for that, Larry. <laughs> yes, I, what, what there should be. But I think we have just too often we've turned off things that have been meaningful to clients and just not considered them. Spirituality is a good example. And we're just beginning to learn about post-traumatic stress and secondary trauma for workers and how you treat secondary and primary trauma. So there's gay and lesbian and transgendered practice. There are models of practice there too, which may not have a lot of quote-unquote evidence-based practice studies, but they offer very interesting ideas from our practice wisdom. They should be on the agenda for the studies as well so that we learn more. Again, about what works. I did science. I did practice in the very beginning, over 40 years ago, when I started really as an academic. I read my friend Joel Fisher's article, and his article said, is casework effective? It was in the Social Work Journal at least 40 years ago. And Joel made the case that the research that he looked at, the meta-analysis, said we weren't effective. 
I wrote a response saying to Joel, you asked the wrong question. The question was not, is casework effective? The question at that stage should have been, what is casework? Because we had not operationalized the independent variable. We hadn't really been able to operationalize and measure what workers actually said and did when they worked with clients. And so my research has always looked at many variables and outcomes. I'm interested in outcomes, but it's always been process research. Forty years ago, I did some of the first category observation analysis, videotape analyses of practice. And so over the years, my teaching, my supervision, my own practice, practiced every year with some kind of a group. I always felt pro bono group would be important to keep me in touch. But I always was interested and curious about what did the worker do and how did it help and what was the intervening variable. I called it working relationship. They now call it the therapeutic alliance and even the group alliance, which I think is very exciting, beginning to understand that's powerful. So I've always been interested in process. So I don't have an objection to evidence-based practices that are describing processes that the workers will use. I just don't think we ought to be rigid about it. Yeah, and maybe a name change to evidence-based processes would really kind of define it better in some ways. I read somebody at one of these, we have social work research conferences, and someone was giving a paper they wanted to change the name of our profession from social work to social research practitioners. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> yes, Mom, I got my degree. I'm a social research practitioner. If she wasn't going to ask, what do you do for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would have been good. The other example that I thought was very creative, and it's in the book, and uh, I just used it, and it's a very powerful one. It's about working with a group of uh, young teenage women, mostly survivors of sexual abuse by parents. And it's a very difficult group because each one has to be in control of the disclosure. They weren't in control of what happened to them. They have to be in control of the disclosure. I won't go into details. There's some very powerful moments in it, which I have trouble even reading in a workshop without myself coming close to tears. In fact, my wife will always ask me at the end of the day, at what point in the workshop did you cry today? Because these things are moving. But at what these workers do is they recognize that these young women have internalized an image of damaged goods and, what the, and, and powerlessness and uh, impotency in trying to control their lives. Things were done to them. And so this is in Boston. There's a Take Back Tonight march. And they get these young women and they say, would you like to go on the march? And of course, there's all kinds of fears, but they go. And the next session, they come back talking how about how it felt to be marching and singing and shouting with other women and feeling empowered, if I'm making sense, by being able to stand up and argue for women's rights against violence. So in the last session, now this is the last thing I'll read, and then I'll answer any of the comments or questions you want. The next to the last session, the worker is doing a wrap-up. I had noticed for some time that Linda seemed agitated and struggling to contain herself. The other member, Rita, came to a pause, and I said, what's going on with you, Linda? Linda seemed startled. Who, me? Why? What's the problem? I answered, well, Rita's been talking about her for a while now about her family, and I know your family has been a source of your pain. You seem upset right now. I wonder what's happening. Linda began to talk about having a great deal of pain all the time. 
She said her losses had totally overwhelmed her lately. She didn't know how she was going to make it. I immediately felt the group come alive. There had been a little bit of an illusion of work where people talk but nothing real is happening. Linda and various members talked for some time about how hopeless she felt. I reached for her ability to cope with her pain, solution-focused. I'm hearing you have so much pain and sadness right now. Linda, I wonder what you're doing with all this hurt. She said she was crying a lot, just letting herself feel the sadness. She was also writing in her journal and writing poems. She mentioned she had just written a poem today about where her pain was taking her. We all asked her to describe it. The title of the poem was Children of the Rainbow. It described how beams of light are shattered and broken as they pass through a drop of water and how they can emerge to form the vibrant colors of the rainbow. The poem said that she and all survivors in recovery are like beams of light. And if they can make it through their pain, they'll become vibrant, beautiful, and whole. The group remained quiet. We had tears in our eyes. I was having trouble because Linda had been my patient for a while. I had a lot of feelings about leaving her. I said I found the poem to be moving. I knew she had incredible pain, but her art and her ability to create were powerful vehicles for carrying her forward and transforming her pain. And the group ended after that. I maintain what we're seeing in that is not just the rethinking or reframing of their power, their ability to confront their abusers, etc., but also their use of art, their use of art to help create a different image of themselves. So that's cognitive behavioral therapy. It may not be called that, but I think that's what it is. And beautifully artistically done. I hope I've made the theme clear. Yeah, that was kind of probably a really nice place to conclude our conversation. It was a great example. I'm pretty sure that there are not a lot of treatment protocols that explicitly call based on the evidence for clients sharing poems in their groups. And I think that's a pretty powerful experience for the entire group. And it makes your point on two different levels. I mean, the art of letting things happen in the group and the support of the client using art to express her ways and in ways that are beyond typical conversation. It's a nice example. And for our profession, this is my concluding comments, where we have to find a place, for example, in the new Healthcare Act, where the various professions are all competing, you know, for which ones are going to be, quote, you know, the chosen professions. It's very important that we understand this issue and not just adopt sciences or art because we want to make a good impression. The other thing is the example I like about it, the part of the example I like is she takes them out on the street and they're doing social action. Now, where is that in any of the other evidence-based practice that are drawn from other professions, by the way, psychologists, psychiatrists, they're not drawn. There's no idea in those. I don't see it. I'm in counseling also. I have a doctorate at Psych, and I read their journals. They're just beginning to understand we need to practice with the community, the agency, the politics as our second client, and that's part of the healing process. Now, you won't find that in many, or at least I haven't been able to find that in many of the protocols. Now, that's been central to our profession. I don't want to give it up. Yep. Well, I think you're right. It was a great point that really the other professions are largely the people who have developed the protocols. 
And so it's really good. They're, in many ways, they're not written for the things that we stand for. And making it our own is the art, or it's part of the art. Larry, thanks a lot. Well, Peter, thank you. I always enjoy these conversations. You've been listening to Dr. Larry Schulman discuss the integration of art and science in evidence-based practice on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.